All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Yes, I am Jay Taylor, talking to you from New York City, the borough of Queens to be exact. It is the 29th day of September 2020. And uh, I do always like to thank you for uh, listening to this show and uh, making it one of the more popular shows in the business uh, on the business channel, the Voice America business channel. Um, and uh, always encourage you to send along your questions to ta- questions for Taylor at gmail.com, questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Any comments you might have, good, bad, or indifferent, uh, we'd like to hear from you. We do always want to thank our sponsors, uh, the mining companies that uh, make this show economically viable, Benchmark Metals, NV Gold, Hannon Metals, Irving Resources, Novo Resources, Sitka Gold Corp., and Lion One Metals are this week's sponsors. Before I again begin talking about today's show, I want to suggest that this pullback in the price of gold and silver is an opportunity for investors who were not listening to this show back in 2016 when Michael Oliver's proprietary momentum and structural analysis work had his subscribers buying gold in the low 1100s. Um, and then a little later, a couple of uh, 2018, Michael uh, suggested that people should ante up some more, buy some more gold at $1,200. So looking back, you might have said woulda, shoulda, coulda, but this current based, I think the the current basing area that we have seen now, I don't know, somewhere around $1,850 to $2,000, that, um, well, I think in the future this may be seen as another great buying opportunity. We'll hear what Michael has to say about that in a few minutes, but uh, of course, most people uh, only think in terms of uh, the price of gold as denominated in their currencies, in dollars, in the case of myself. Most people don't understand that gold isn't gaining in value, but rather that the currencies against which they measure the price of gold and silver and other commodities is a self-destructing unit of measure. Hence, the need to protect your wealth by swapping your paper money your fiat money, the money that you are forced to use by law, swap that into gold or silver, which unlike fiat money, has tangible value that lasts as long as the good Lord allows this earth to exist. It has lasted for, for, uh, for centuries, actually. So even though my personal portfolio is down a bit as a result of this pullback, I look at this basing period for gold and silver as as a blessing for investors who recognize now, who recognize the need to own gold and silver, may not have gotten in back at those lower levels, but I think there's an opportunity now. Uh, and uh, 
some of those people uh, that are really starting to believe that they need to own some gold and silver. Uh, that's why I designed my course, Investing 101 Gold, Silver, and the Miners. And that course will be launched on Thursday, October 1, first day of October. Uh, and you can go to course.miningstocks.com to sign up for it, the course on October 1st. Even if you have some gold and silver, um, and I hope you do, that you have some in your possession, uh, and maybe you haven't invested in the mining shares. So if, if that's the case, this, this course may be of value to you uh, in that regard as well. I'd be using uh, the experience that I've gathered over the last three or four decades in uh, studying, analyzing, writing, investing about mining shares to pass that along in the course. And more importantly, Dr. Quentin Henning, uh, who is probably the most sought-after exploration geologist in the world, at least certainly one of them, uh, he is also providing uh, some, some information about what he looks for before he invests his time, his good name, and his money in various mining projects. So uh, the show, uh, so again, that is uh, course.miningstocks.com, course.miningstocks.com to sign up for my, for my, newsletter, or for my uh, course. It starts on October 1st. All right, with regard to today's show, I've titled it Rose-Colored Glasses or Reality. Lynn Alden, Michael Oliver, and Peter Ball return as guests. Legendary stock guru Richard Russell used to say that stockbrokers became wealthy because they didn't buy their own BS. Well, Washington and Wall Street are known for spinning tall tales of nirvana. They tell you how wonderful shares of stock are that they really can't wait to sell you. Wall Street's friends in Washington, I would suggest, are much of the same mindset. They also have a kind of snake oil that they can't wait to sell you. Um, so not surprisingly, the Congressional Budget Office proclaims that there will be a V-shaped recovery with minimal future stimulus and that federal debt as a percentage of GDP will quickly level off and remain level throughout the 2020s. Well, that really sounds like a rosy scenario to me. I do hope the CBO is right, who in their right mind would not wish that to be true. But sometime, something is telling me that neither Mike Oliver, Michael Oliver or Lynn Alden, neither of whom are known to don rose-colored glasses, will see such a quick turn, a V-shaped recovery, if you will, uh, back to normalcy. I hope, I hope that that happens, but I personally I have my reservations and we'll hear what Lynn has to say in the second half of today's show. We'll see what her prognosis is for the economy. And as I mentioned in the second segment, um, Peter Ball will be with me. He heads up NV Gold Corporation. Um, NV Gold has three very exciting gold projects, two in Nevada and one in British Columbia. Uh, all three of them will be uh, seeing some drilling done before the end of this year. So I think uh, this is a story, a very low-cap company that I'm really excited about, and I'm eager to hear what Peter has to tell us in the second segment right after our first commercial break. But getting back to the question of whether or not we can look forward to a V-shaped recovery, I am happy to tell you that Michael Oliver is with me now to share his thoughts and uh, on that topic and more. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hi, Jay. Good to be back. It's always good to have you back every other week. We can't get you every week. You're too much in demand, but we're glad at least we can get you every other week. So we've had this correction. Is it a correction in gold? And, um, mm -hmm. you know, what do you... Do you think we've bottomed yet, or, or what are your thoughts on gold right now, from a longer-term perspective? Chance. Good chance that was the low. Uh, this is sort of a, 
a lesser version of what happened in March, which was really, uh, it was also very short-lived. Uh, the sell-off in silver and gold miners in particular, gold didn't have such a hit then, but the gold miners and the silver market back then had this uh, V-shaped <laughs> sell-off and yeah. recovery that you could measure literally in days. And uh, so what they took away in days, they they grabbed it all back and then two and three times as much in the next several weeks. And, and uh, I think that you're not, I hardly even call it a correction, because most of our momentum metrics, uh, call it short-term metrics, uh, peaked in August, early August, with the price high, which was, you know, mm-hmm. 2070 on spot gold. And, but then you had this very sharp sell-off into mid-August that lasted about two days. You mm-hmm. got down into the, I think it was about 1870, 1860 on the nearby contract. And then you shot back up and spent the next month or two to going sideways. Mm-hmm. in between the high and the low. So you really weren't selling off anymore. But then as you crept along in time, and again, we measure things in time, not just uh, momentum measurements, but how long is the momentum chart going down? In the case of a weekly oscillator, to be going down for six, seven, eight weeks while price is mainly going sideways is aging the process, meaning the corrective process is accumulating age on the downside, and yet the bears couldn't make any, any ground on it until uh-huh. last, what was it, last Wednesday. They finally went down and punched out that August 11th, August 12th low by enough to take it out. So you could say, oh, I ran the stops, and no mm-hmm. doubt they did. Uh, silver did a comparable thing, only deeper, and so did the gold miners. They all went down and took out an obvious price chart low, and they're all back above it now. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was like and a quick sting and then boop, right back up into the prior range. Mm-hmm. So I, I tend to think that that might have been the low, and mm-hmm. par- partly because of the age process. In other words, the mm-hmm. sellers had been selling for like two months, and finally they made some money if they mm-hmm. grabbed it. Right now, probably most of the sellers are about break-even. Right, so, uh, right. And so, <laughs> and so, Michael, I mean, people, most people watch the charts, and I, you know, I look at your work all the time, and most often, I mean, you're you're really basing your your thinking on on the momentum work uh, usually. So if your momentum is still looking strong, you're you're not worried. But other people are looking at the charts and they're getting, you know, they're having nervy busts over the over the declines. Well, yeah, you know, the the long term momentum, which is what our primary thing, uh, we, yeah. we try to focus on. That's why we call the bottom at eleven forty and. Uh, February yep. 2016, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, there's nothing in it when we plot those those charts that is in danger of breaking. In other words, there's not even a trend structure, you know, where you can uh-huh. draw a line and say, okay, this is an uptrend or this is a floor, and you're break. You're not. E- there's not even one nearby. Therefore, usually the, the rule of thumb is this: if if uh, if there's nothing to break, you, you're not going to change your trend. You, mm-hmm. It has to be pretty obvious, like the bridge on the River Kwai. You can't blow it up <laughs> and have it crash until they build it. Okay? Uh-huh. <laughs> so there is no structure that's vulnerable on long-term goal charts. Uh, the only thing that looks vulnerable is the day-to-day action, which, unfortunately, mm-hmm. too many investors are focused on. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I feel sorry for them because if, if you jump every time they say boo, yeah. one time you're not going to get back in. Well, uh, more than one time. You know, I, mean, I, I used it. to, yeah. And this is why you're so valuable to me as a longer-term investor in gold mining shares and, and other things as well. If you take a longer-term perspective, it's just very helpful to feel, you know, not to, to, to be able to sleep at night, not worrying about your position when you go to bed at night. 
So it's, uh, that's so helpful. Uh, what about the dollar, Michael? How's that looking to you these days? Uh, the, the dollar's had a rally. Uh, basically, if you look at a dollar index daily chart, you'll see that it made a low about the same time gold made a high. And then the dollar had a, had a bit of a rally, not much, insignificant percent or so. And then it went sideways for about the seven, eight weeks, just like gold did off of its high, but went sideways. And then the dollar uh, two weeks ago had a little surge finally you know, where you could actually see it. <laughs> uh, and all the people talking about strong dollar came back on board again, a dollar strong. When you stand back and look at a dollar chart going back 40 years, uh, uh, it, it is an anemic-looking beast. Uh, it, it's in a major downtrend. You have rallies here and there, but basically it's in dire straits. And the recent rally is insignificant. I think it's about out of gas. I suspect the dollar is going to roll over uh, within a week or two and head back down again. And it may be coincident with gold flipping back up again. Uh, Mm -hmm. Not that they have to be totally inverse, but uh, it might just be the case. So I don't Mm -hmm. trust the dollar rally. I think it's got a lot lot further to go on the downside. And realize dollar's trading around 93.94 right now, dollar index. The high in March was 103. Mm -hmm. And to be 10% off of a high uh, in several months, that's a big move for the dollar. Yeah, better believe it. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, you know, Ray Dalio talks about how right now the dollar is in some trouble longer term, but there's no other major currency that you can go to, but people are going to stuff. They're buying commodities, they're buying gold, they're buying other tangibles. And I know that your position in commodities, your 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 thoughts about commodities, you've been generally very bullish. What are your thoughts right now? So, uh, the Bloomberg Commodity Index, I would watch it because uh, this month's high on the Bloomberg Commodity Index was 73.9 something, just just short of 74. If during the fourth quarter, which starts on Thursday, we see the dollar index back up to 73.5. Right now it's trading around 71. Because mm-hmm. back to 73.5, which is not, does not even require taking out this, this past month's high, I'm going to engage quarterly momentum on the dollar index in a massive breakout. Mm. In which case, I think at that point, instead of the uh, arm wrestling upside that the dollar, uh, excuse me, that Bloomberg has had over the mm-hmm. last f- se- several months since March, it was yeah. down in the 50s, uh, right. will become more explosive. And I think mm-hmm. it'll become noticeable and become a headline in the financial press and be further wind at the back of gold. So we're looking for a number of uh, 0.735? Is that, yeah, did I hear uh, you correctly? A couple points above where you are right now, 73 uh-huh. and a half area. Uh, if you trade that number again, you just sort of return near this month's high during the fourth quarter, and I think it's uh, it's for real they're going to launch it. And I, I, my suspicion is, expectation is, the first leg up will take the Bloomberg Commodity Index up to around 110. Mm. Now, you go from 70 to 110 is a large Wow, percentage. that's quite a move. That's quite a yeah, move. Yeah. Well, that's we know the that the Chinese move. are supposedly buying lots of commodities, and uh, including copper. So, uh, mm-hmm. anyway, who, who knows what the... You're looking at the charts, and your work is just impeccable. It's just so valuable to me, Michael. And uh, for all of you folks, you should be checking in with Michael and, and signing up for his service. It's OliverMSA.com, OliverMSA.com. Thanks so much for being with us again, Michael. And uh, oh, all, the best you, to you and, all the best to yeah. you and your family out there in the Rocky Mountains now. So take care. <laughs> right. Thank you, Jay. Bye. All right. All right, folks. Well, we do have to go to break now, but uh, Peter Ball will be with us. He's uh, of NV Gold. That's NV, the initials NV, not NV like a socialist, NV Gold Corporation. Peter will be with me right after the break, so don't go away. 
Novo Resources Corp. trades on the OTCQX under the symbol NSRPF and on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol NVO. Its flagship assets are located in the Pilbara region of Western Australia. Novo has recently partnered with Sumitomo Corporation of Japan to evaluate, advance, and develop the company's Australian gold projects. With over $40 million in cash and $60 million committed from Sumitomo, Novo is well on its way to establishing itself as one of the top junior explorers and developers in Australia. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm here with Peter Ball, the president and CEO of NV Gold Corporation. Peter brings with him over 30 years of experience as, as a mining professional at, at various levels, and what really impresses me is the, uh, the wide range of experiences that he's had in the mining sector. He has uh, been in senior management roles with various major companies in the past, but in areas of finance, uh, securities trading, mine engineering, business development, corporate communications, public relations, uh, and uh, marketing functions. And all those things are part of what small junior mining companies need, those skill sets. And so Peter has the science uh, engineering background as well as a commercial background. And I think it makes him very well suited to head up this company, which is uh, quickly becoming one of my favorites, NV Gold Corporation Trades. In Toronto, its symbol is NVX. Uh, you can buy it down here in the States, as I have under the symbol NVGLF. 64.8 million shares. Uh, I saw earlier this morning selling at only 28 cents in Canadian money, uh, giving it a market cap of a mere 18.2 million or thereabouts in Canadian money. So, um, well, thanks for joining me again, Peter. Afternoon, Jay. Always a pleasure to join your program. Yeah, it's good to have you. And, uh, you know, it's good to have you because you got a lot of exciting things going on and you have some 16 active projects, but you're basically, you're corporately, you're focused on three. I Three, I guess, that you think are probably the ones that offer the most upside, the greatest promise. Uh, you did introduce those three projects when you were last on the show on July 28th, but I, but I know that you've been doing some work on all of them since then, uh, so I'd like you to, to bring us up to date. Um, you've got the Sandy Project and the Slumber Projects in Nevada. Those are two that you're focusing on. And then one that you explained last time, Exodus Gold Project, which uh, sort of by a, uh, by happenstance or by a miracle, you picked up a, that project, which you're very excited about. But uh, could you perhaps update us first on the two Nevada projects and uh, what you've done since we last spoke to you? Yeah, absolutely, Jay. Let's start down in Nevada um, it's kind of an excellent day to, to, to have another conversation and bring your listeners up to speed of what NV Gold's been doing the last couple of months. Um, this morning, um, we'll start off with Sandy. This morning we announced yeah. that we've just received our drill permits for the Sandy Gold Project for trading, uh, chasing a high-grade 
epithermal uh, gold uh, project, um, uh, depth of that project. Interesting project just outside of Reno. We've done some geophysics just recently. We're actually in the middle of interpreting them to add um, to the intelligence we'll have on that project to put forth the drill program commencing probably the middle of October, maybe 8 to 10 holes, 1,500 meters. Um, interesting part about that project I mentioned last time, um, we're right in the middle um, of another company that has raised $20 million advancing um, a similar style of, of, of mineralization just immediately to the west of us. We staked our project for a couple thousand dollars last year out of our database, did some geophysics, property visit, mapping. We're ready. So that's, that's an interesting project. That is the first of three drill programs that we will be commencing in the next two months. So mm-hmm. that's Sandy. Interesting yep. project. Um, but staying in Nevada, if you head a little north, just west of Winnemucca, um, mm-hmm. we're chasing what we believe is um, a similar project to the historical sleeper mine that was uh, found and discovered after multiple holes and yielded one of the highest-grade intercepts and one of the highest-grade projects ever mined in Nevada. I think they mined the first few thousand tons at 16 or 15.7 ounces per ton. Yes, it was amazing. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And here we are just just to the west of that project, similar rocks, geology, surface uh, expression. Last year we stuck a few what we call blind holes into the project, and we hit some interesting mineralization. It was low-grade last year, but our technical team, which is comprised of, of some of the greatest mines in, in, the, uh, in the mining industry, two of them, Dr. Quinton Henney and Dr. Odin Christensen, took a look at the holes from last year and said, you know, low-grade, but I think we might be on top of something. We'll come back next year. Our goal is to always manage our dollars, put our, put our, um, make sure we put the dollars into the ground and not into the... Uh, into our pockets. So we came back this spring and uh, COVID delayed it by a couple of months, but we went back and we did what is called the CSAMT survey, which really mm-hmm. is uh, a geophysical survey method that allows you to look on the vertical scale of the project subsurface from um, where you previously drilled or your previous interpretation and look for uh, an anomaly that will allow us to pinpoint our drill holes probably within two to three meters of where we need to be. So we completed the survey, and we just announced a couple of weeks ago, since, we, uh, since I last spoke to you, in the uh, early September, uh, some spectacular geophysical targets that a couple of our uh, technical teams say that never seen such an uh, interesting and exciting CSAMT survey target. So that one, we actually just uh, last week put forth a a drill permit application. We'll be looking to do a follow-up program deeper from the 2019 program and uh, stick about 10 holes, maybe about 1,000 feet, a little bit deeper each, uh, yielding about 2,500 meters. So we have an exciting next couple of months in Nevada. Interesting, very interesting. Well, I can't help but notice the similarity of the name. The sleeper and the slumber, and I'm just wondering Absolutely. if. You, I'm, I, yeah. So you know, I was actually on that project. I worked for ING. Actually, I worked for Westpac Banking Corp, and we were part of the financing group. 
that financed for Amex, the mining company, put that into production. I was there. But, Peter, you know, that was that incredibly high-grade area. And they had a lot of low-grade stuff out around as well. I think they might have done some heap leaching as well. But then they found this Mm -hmm. incredible, without the tools that you have today, I I might add, I think they didn't have the same... Uh, capabilities as as you have now to look at to look at what you're doing so who knows maybe you'll come up with something similar a sleeper and the slumber yeah we were yeah we were actually talking internally that it took i'm not sure how many holes 38 or 48 holes to actually finally hit what they believe was sitting subsurface at sleeper and here we are about eight holes in we've got the csamt done and we're heading back and if you go to the website and look under the press release uh, dated in september under slumber You'll see a drill hole that just maybe wasn't drilled deep enough, but we'll go back. Um, we'll put the drill program in. I'll put the drill pro- program together and see what comes out of there. Oh, very exciting. Okay, so but you have also uh, this project up in up in British Columbia, uh, the Exodus project. What have you done there yeah. since we? I know you just had acquired it recently, but what have you done there on the Exodus? Yeah, so absolutely. So. Uh, Exodus will be our third drill program that we're looking to do, um, potentially commencing early November. We're in the middle of permitting. We just acquired the project exactly last time we spoke uh, in early July. Um, Since then, we've actually completed a property-wide geophysical um, survey just to really look at the liniments and surface structures identified for the geophysics. We've done... um, and completed, but awaiting assays for a two-square-kilometer soil grid. Looks interesting um, out of the gate. We're still waiting for a number of assays, or assays to come in to really put the model together. We've unearthed um, uh, at surface what we believe is additional veins, but, you know, we need to re- uh, look at it, get the assays in from the channel samples that are cutting across the multiple veins that have been I guess, discovered in addition to the original veins that were there. And the one thing about this project, central British Columbia, we're halfway from uh, from Vancouver to the Yukon, right next to a paved highway, a couple kilometers, a few kilometers from a railway, power line, pipeline, community. You can drive to site, stay in an Airbnb. It's going to be a very active project during the month of October into November with assays. Um, we'll just put it together a drill uh, program for probably 1,500 meters, maybe eight holes, just to test it. It'll be the very first program ever drilled in this area of British Columbia. So we're excited to test it, and it's kind of early stages, but we're excited. Yeah. Well, three drill programs uh, that are that are going to be, uh, I mean, initial drill programs in each case, I guess. So. Um, it's going to be very exciting. And and uh, how is your budget? How is your finances right now? You can, I guess, you have enough money to finance these these programs, or are you going to have to raise some more? No, absolutely. We are one hundred percent fully financed to complete all three drill programs and left with probably just under a couple million dollars still in the treasury after we complete these programs. That's our budget. Um, just a little bit about that. We completed two financings this year, one at 14 cents in May, May 26. All that paper just recently came free trading. We're up mm-hmm. about 130% from that financing. Wow, that's and, good. And uh, we're yeah. seeing a lot of good shareholders sticking in with the story. They're here for what they believe our technical team can yield on a potential discovery. Uh, we did a second financing, closed August, uh, August 24th. 
of about $3 million. And so anybody looking at the company right now, um, we're trading at about 32 to 33 cents Canadian. And um, yeah, you can buy in the same price or take a look at the, look at the company at the same price the financing was uh, about a month ago. Yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, well, I guess this pullback in, uh, in, in gold and silver has sort of helped people uh, catch their breath a little bit and a, and a possibility of getting in uh, to a story like yours at a very, at a very reasonable level. Uh, so I think this is really exciting. And, and you, speaking of your shareholders, with a minute left here, um, who, Peter, who are who are your major shareholders? Well, I think that the main key thing about the shareholder um, distribution is the chairman and myself are, are two of the two of the largest shareholders of the company. Uh-huh. But we also have the likes of um, Eric Sprott. He's yep. just sub or around ten percent of the shareholdings. Uh-huh. We have a new two groups, um, some reputable firms out of Denver, uh, Crestcat Capital, a leading precious metal uh, uh, group, and mm-hmm. another group out of Boston. And then we also have two corporates that have invested into the company. So we have significant distribution between institutional high net worth um, and uh, significant shareholders like Eric Sprott. And management team, we put our own money into, into the company to ensure that we can um, be part of the uh, shareholders that join us with the company. $54 million now. We have about $1.7 million also of warrants in the money and just okay. $3 million in the bank as of uh, last week. All right. Well, it's just certainly, uh, if you come through with some good drill results, I'm sure the share price is going to be substantially higher. You'll do your next financing, uh, hopefully at uh, double or triple the current price. That would be great. At least that'd be great for, for someone like myself who bought the shares at, at these or lower prices. So really looking forward. Anything else you'd like to add with 30 seconds left? No, with that, I, I really appreciate um, everyone just taking a look at NV Gold. Um, just one note, I, I try to be the most accessible accessible CEO in the industry. So the one 363 goes right to my cell phone. So you're not going to get Wonderful. an email person. Peter, Peter at com. Email me, phone me. Uh, we welcome all uh, interest. Well, thank you very much, Peter, for that. That's very generous of you, and uh, we appreciate your time. Thank you for being with us. All right, uh, folks. Have an amazing day. You too. Uh, we're going to go to break now, but don't go away because Lynn Alvin will be with me, and uh, she always has some great insights into not only what is happening, but why things are happening in the market, and uh, you're not going to want to miss what Lynn has to say about are we going to have a V-shaped recovery or what might the future hold? economically for America. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Lynn Alden. NV Gold Core, trading under NVX on the TSX and NVGLF on the OTC, is a gold exploration company focused on uncovering the next multi-million ounce gold deposit in North America. With an aggressive exploration season ahead in 2020, a tight share structure, strong management ownership, key strategic investors including Eric Sprott, a globally recognized technical team, technical coverage from industry gold experts, and cash in its treasury. Visit nvgoldcore.com to learn more on this exciting story. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really honored to have with me Lynn Alden. She's here for a second time. Um, I think probably a lot of you are aware of Lynn. She seems to be gaining a lot of traction, uh, and for good reason, because she provides, uh, I think, a lot of great insights into not only what's happening in the markets, but why things are taking place as they are, and that's the kind of person we'd like to have on this show. We don't want to just know what's going up and down, but what's why? What are the reasons so that we can prepare for the future uh, and try to understand the markets as best we can? So Lynn has a background as an engineer, um, and it's just a, quite a, an incredible background. She's had. Uh, uh, she's also been very active uh, in advising and uh, financing and uh, and, and managing money and so forth. So uh, she, she has had a lot of coverage in the mainstream media, uh, Forbes, uh, Market Watch, Time, uh, Times Money, Mag- Money Magazine, The Daily Telegraph, uh, The Street, CNBC, U.S. News and World Report, Kiplinger. It goes on and on. So we're really pleased and honored to have Lynn with us again. And I should mention again, it's lynnalden.com, lynnalden.com. A-L-D-E-N-L-Y-N, Alden.com, to catch up with Lynn. And she does provide a great deal of very heavy-duty, I would say, uh, substantive free stuff uh, that you can take advantage of. She also, though, uh, does charge a very, I think, very reasonable amount for uh, for advice that she passes on for investors as well. Lynn, thank you so much for joining us again. Hey, thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. I really am glad that you can be with us because um, I, I know that uh, it's interesting. We have a son who's in his early 30s, and uh, we're a little. He started to get in, interested in investing, but he. I was a little surprised that we mentioned my wife and I. When we talked to him last weekend. That yeah, he he knew your name. So that was oh, nice. <laughs> that was pretty interesting. He's out in California, and we don't see him that often because we're here in New York City. But in any event, um, we talk to him every week about it, and more and more about investing. So, um, you know, Lynn, most pundits on CNBC and other mainstream financial media, as well as uh, politicians, both parties actually, they seem to focus on COVID-19 as a major reason for our current economic malaise. But you did a great job, I think, in pointing out uh, what I think was a canary in the coal mine back in September 2019 when you explained why the repo market rates surged suddenly up to about 10%. Uh, necessitating the need for the Federal Reserve to start pumping money to the system again. Uh, could you perhaps talk a little bit about the mechanics of that? What what happened then? And then to what extent is it still an issue uh, or isn't an issue now? Uh, and to what extent might have that been telling us something about the systemic issues that we might still be facing now? I don't know. I want to I hear what you have to say about that. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, in any sort of recession, I think there's a lot of media coverage around the catalyst, right? Because yeah. that's that's the most newsworthy or a headline part, especially because mm-hmm. th- this was an unusually kind of noteworthy catalyst. So there's a lot of media attention on it. Uh, but, you know, the, the work I've been showing is that there's a lot more uh, meat, meat kind of behind that, which is the, the amount of debt in the system. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of a lot of financial indicators uh, saw this coming, even though, of course, they couldn't fully see the pandemic coming. So, for example, the yield curve inverted, you know, like before the pandemic hit, uh, we had slowing GDP uh, ever since the end of 2018. Uh, so, you know, we were already kind of in a, in a deceleration phase. And so the, the pandemic kind of hit us while we were already somewhat weak. And mm-hmm. so the, wor- the work I did on the repo crisis last year uh, showed that basically – we're getting to the point where, you know, we've had so much debt build up in the system, uh, you know, especially on the on the sovereign side at this point. So it's so federal debt that, uh, you know, there's not a lot of private buyers uh, for that for that debt. So, for example, mm-hmm. the, the foreign sector has not really accumulated uh, too much treasuries in the past five or six years. And the domestic balance sheets are pretty saturated by that. So what that essentially means is that if the Fed wants to keep interest rates low, they have to gobble up a pretty significant part of ongoing treasury issuance at this time. And that's something we saw. It, it began, you know, they were trying to do quantitative tightening, uh, but starting with the repo crisis, they had to quickly reverse that and begin, uh, you know, uh, increasing their balance sheet, buying more treasuries. Uh, and of course, that was that was pre-pandemic. And then they've, mm-hmm. had, to ex- they've had to accelerate that, uh, you know, during this, you know, global slowdown and recession, uh, especially in March and April, they had to buy a ton of treasuries. And then they're still just, you know, they're buying like uh, $80, $80 billion or so a month uh, currently in treasuries. Mm. Wow. So, uh, so the problem, if anything, has gotten worse. It means more stimulation. Not stimulation is the wrong word, I think. Just more liquidity needs to be pumped into the system to keep the system from imploding. Yeah, so you know, one of the ways I characterize this is is to show that you know most people are aware of the short-term business cycle, which is you know you have leverage build up and then there's some sort of catalyst or something happens and you have a deleveraging event, right? So you have kind of malinvestments worked out of the system, mm-hmm. uh, but because of the way our system works, as soon as we have a deleveraging event, we have a lot of fiscal stimulus and a lot of monetary stimulus. They lower interest rates, and that incurred that kind of short circuits the deleveraging event and encourages the system to re-leverage back up. So mm-hmm. over the course of multiple short-term business cycles, they never really deleverage back all the way down. So they they de- leverage like half the way and then they start building up from there so if you if you string a bunch of those short-term business cycles together into a multi-decade secular trend uh, you get higher and higher debt as a percentage of GDP uh, and you get lower lower interest rates until you hit the zero bound and so that's what happened of course back in 2009 we hit the zero bound we had extraordinarily high debt uh, and that's that's still in play over a decade later now Uh, Mm -hmm. and you know if anything more of that debt got up to the sovereign level because we, we bailed out the private system, you know, a decade ago, and that all, you know, a lot of that got up to the to the sovereign debt level, and so now we went into this crisis with already having federal debt as over 100% of GDP. Right. So you have lower and lower rates because uh, the system can't can't tolerate higher rates, and the deeper into this uh, multi short-term cycle you go, like the more of these short-term cycles that pile on top of each other. The lower the rates go, the higher the, the debt is. And so interest rates don't go back up just simply because the manipulation by the Fed. You would think that if there's a shortage of money around, um, you know, if the Fed didn't keep pumping, that rates would go up. You'd have a very severe recession, perhaps, or maybe not that severe if you left it happen on an ongoing, if you, didn't, if you weren't involved with manipulating the monetary system on a regular basis, perhaps, 
you would have these little tiny, uh, you know, um, cycles, um, adjustments, I should say, with rates going up? Or, or do you think that um, that there's something systemic about it? That there's nothing that, in other words, what I'm trying to ask, is it is it the result of the Federal Reserve or central banks in general that cause or exacerbate the pileup of debt on top of each other because they don't want to allow or the politicians don't allow them to let the free market, uh, you know, uh, adjust naturally. Yeah, I think it's a blend of fiscal and monetary policy. Uh, and so, you know, l- looking at interest rates in particular, you know, it's a self-reinforcing loop. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, lower interest rates allow for more debt accumulation. Mm-hmm. But as debt goes higher and higher, it makes it impossible to raise rates. Uh, so it, it kind of pushes rates down. Uh, and that, that, of course, allows more debt accumulation. And that keeps happening until you reach the zero bound. I think, uh, you know, decades ago, monetary policymakers could have gone in a different direction. For example, under Greenspan, uh, that, you know, they could have uh, had less dovish monetary policy and that could have prevented some of this debt accumulating as high as it did. Uh, mm-hmm. However, you know, because of the path they chose, uh, the, you know, the challenging thing now is that they're, they're so backed into a corner, right? So now, you know, no matter uh, who you put in charge of the Fed, uh, it's kind of like just a, a set of bad choices to choose from, right? Because yeah. if, you know, uh, they, you know, they're never going to be in a situation where they let, uh, say, the sovereign just nominally default, right? Because uh, all banks around the country hold treasuries as part of their risk-free collateral. So if you had a treasury default, uh, you would have a default of the entire banking system, which would be uh, systemic. Uh, so mm-hmm. because of that, you know, they're into that corner. They essentially have to, to uh, you know, make sure that the treasure market stays liquid. Uh, but that comes with its own kind of downside, which can be currency devaluation, uh, negative real interest rates, and all sorts of things like that. So it's it's really tough because they had choices decades ago, and now they have they have very few choices. There are very few choices left. But in the article that you wrote about a century of fiscal and monetary policy, you you really outlined the difference between these short-term uh, these short-term debt cycles, and then the one that accumulates, the cumulative one, the one that happens every what, eighty or a hundred years or so, I guess. Um, um, and and so it really has, uh, as you say, there's not many choices left. So, how does this thing play out? Yeah. And, the main and how do you think it will play out? Because as you point out in your article, monetary policy becomes. Uh, less and less effective, it seems, as these cycles pile on top of each other. Yeah, so in a normal business cycle, uh, you can deleverage nominally if you let it happen. Uh, And the problem is when it gets exacerbated into a long-term debt cycle. So you build more and more debt up, and then interest rates get lower and lower, and when they hit the zero bound, that's when you have a long-term debt cycle play out. So, you know, ever since, uh, you know, 2008, 2009, we've been in this, you know, zero or near, near zero environment. And like like you said, the last time that happened was about 80 years ago, uh, you know, starting in the early 1930s. That was the last time we were uh, persistently at the zero bound. Uh, and so, you know, what happens in that environment is that monetary policy kind of runs out of ammo. So that, you know, their interest rates hit the zero bound. Uh, so then they turn into creating bank reserves to buy assets, you know, you know, notice quantitative easing today. Uh, but, you know, that that doesn't that doesn't get, you know, money into the hands of the people that doesn't encourage banks to necessarily lend more uh, because they're already kind of levered up. Uh, so, you know, historically, when you get to the long term debt cycle, that's when fiscal policy usually takes over and gets more aggressive. So fiscal policy, you know, politicians start usually running much higher uh, uh, fiscal deficits. Uh, and so usually what what happens is. Uh, instead of deleveraging nominally, you end up deleveraging in real terms by devaluing currency. So they, you know, when you have kind of a massive amount of debt relative to GDP or relative to money supply, 
uh, and because it's you know a fiat system, they can essentially expand the monetary supply uh, significantly. Uh, so what what we've seen this year. And what we've seen, you know, 80 years ago, last time this happened, is you have a very rapid increase in the broad money supply. And so you, you end up deleveraging debt relative to broad money uh, without ever actually decreasing debt. Uh, but, of course, the downside to that is anyone holding uh, cash in a bank or holding uh, sovereign bonds or other kind of, you know, low-yielding, uh, you know, supposedly safe assets uh, can lose a lot of their purchasing power. Uh, and that's you know it's 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 a very challenging time for investors in this environment because you know stocks are highly valued, uh, but then they ask where they're going to go. And if they look at the bond market, you know bonds are giving you negative real yields, uh, so their yields are lower than the than the underlying inflation rate. And so there's not a lot of safe havens, especially in in kind of you know some of the most mainstream assets for investors to flock to. Yeah, no place to go, no place to run, no place to hide. It seems uh, where you can really go, and you know normally you would go into treasuries and these other earlier cycles and. Uh, and get a reasonable return at least, maybe, uh, you know, and, and then you can back, come back out and buy stocks uh, after they've bottomed out at some point and make a lot of money that way. But it seems as though the system itself is now in some, is some, deep, in some deep trouble. And so we had Roosevelt back in the 30s and uh, all the public works programs and all those ways. And now we're seeing massive numbers of people who are having difficulty paying their rents uh, we're having the CDC, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know what gives them the authority to tell, um, uh, to tell people they don't have to pay their, their rents uh, to landlords, and landlords uh, certainly have to pay their mortgages to the banks, I would think, and you would think that somewhere along the way uh, there's going to be some big trouble unless there is a lot of money that's created out of nothing and pumped into the system, right? Uh, yeah, that's kind of the two choices they have. They can either let kind of a, a big nominal collapse happen, right, because there's so much debt in the system. And, uh, you know, the middle class at this point is pretty insolvent because we have a very high degree of wealth concentration. Uh, so, you know, they, it, I think a lot of people look too much at, uh, you know, debt relative to income, but they don't mm -hmm. separate, separate out the different kind of income quintiles, right? So mm -hmm. a lot of the assets are held by, you know, the top 10% or so, uh, whereas a lot of the debts are actually in, in, in kind of the lower groups. And so, you know, for, for the average person, uh, their expenses have gone up a lot more quickly than their income, which has made mm -hmm. it very difficult to save, uh, and they've ended up taking out a lot of debt in many cases. Uh, so, you know, they're kind of in a situation now where, uh, you know, they're stuck between if they don't do stimulus, uh, you know, they're likely to have more bank failures, they're likely to have more civil unrest, uh, likely to have, you know, kind of uh, weaker corporate uh, profits. And then, of course, you know, because our system is kind of very influenced by money, uh, a lot of those corporate, uh, you know, uh, you know, CEOs and and investors are donors, political donors. Uh, so yes. they, you know, so politicians are under pressure by them. So yes. both both from the public in terms of civil unrest and from uh, the investor class uh, from donors, uh, there's not a lot of kind of inbuilt incentive uh, to to not do stimulus, uh, other than kind of uh, political gamesmanship. Uh, but yeah. if they when they, when they do stimulus, of course, then then the the you know the offset of that is usually get more currency weakness. Uh, so. Uh, yeah. it, it's kind of like just choosing between different ways to kind of deflate a bubble. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, naturally, uh, the, whenever they kind of have control over the printing press, they usually try to go the printing route. Mm -hmm. The easiest way out, it seems. Yeah. Well, then you talk about, you know, it, it, you, we're seeing these these riots in the major cities, uh, a lot of destruction, some loss of life at this stage by a couple of uh, groups, uh, Antifa and Black Lives Matter. Uh, what I hear you saying is there's probably some, not necessarily what is being sold as the reason for all this, but there's probably a lot of other deep-seated uh, 
issues of anxiety throughout, especially younger people who are having difficulty coming out of college, paying their debts, and finding jobs and so forth. But I, I'm wondering if you've, uh, if are, have you read the fourth? I'm, I'm guessing you've read the fourth turning. Yes. Yeah, I've actually mentioned that on a couple different podcasts too. And if you look back in history, so the long-term debt cycles, uh, they're all fourth turnings. Uh, so yeah. you know that that kind of um, a big kind of debt buildup and deleveraging event uh, generally comes with uh, you know a pretty big uh, societal shift at those points mm-hmm. because it, it's a very polarizing uh, period every time it happens. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like every uh, every four generations or so. So it's an 80 to 100 year period. So the last one was the 1930s. I guess before that, um, we would have been looking in the U.S. history. We would have been looking at, at the Civil War, maybe. And yeah, yeah. So these are big. This this is a big event that we have. I think playing out here. Um, what what are you know? I listened to Ray Dalio recently talking about. Um, you know, he, the, the question was posed to him on Bloomberg whether the dollar could be in trouble, and he says, yes, I think it, it could be in trouble. There's no other currency to go to right now, but people are doing, are, you know, are, are going to gold. They're going to things that will save value because certainly you can't go to treasuries to save value. You're, you're, you know, the real rate of return is negative there, um, and maybe inflation starts to rise a little bit too because you've had some supply tr- chain issues related to COVID, perhaps maybe some more coming. Uh, people unemployed, they're not producing anything, but they're getting paychecks. Um, what this looks like um, could be a lot of a lot of issues ahead. What about the dollar's um, future? How do you see that and, uh, and, and inflation? Do you see potential for rising inflation and given this uh, fiscal stimulus that's going to be accommodated with monetary printing, obviously. Yeah, so my base case is to see kind of a more multipolar uh, currency reserve world, which means uh-huh. that the dollar uh, could shift from being the global reserve currency to a global reserve currency, mm-hmm. which me- meaning like one of several. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one, one example to look at is that two years ago, uh, the trade between Russia and China was about 85% dollars. Uh, mm-hmm. And over the past two years, they've significantly de-dollarized uh, down to about 45% dollars. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and euros have taken uh, the lion's share of that difference. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's not to say that the euro is going to replace the dollar because the euro has its own problems. But what it means is that you know instead of all global energy, for example, being priced in dollars, uh, it can be potentially priced in a couple different major currencies. So Russia has been pushing to try to price uh, energy in euros. Uh, and you know China's uh, you know been interested in, in, in kind of um, you know being able to price uh, commodities outside of the dollar system. Uh, so I think you know starting from some of those countries that are that are like less friendly to the United States and that are less uh, pleased with kind of the the, the the monopoly that the dollar has on global mm-hmm. commodity pricing, uh, you kind of see it start from there and spread out. And I mean to some extent that that's a return to how it's it, it's been in the past because even though. There's, you know, for for centuries, there's always been a global reserve currency. Uh, it's actually been this is an unusual period where one currency is used to price like all commodities worldwide. Uh, yes. So that's 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 a very unusual period. And so, you know, uh, I think we're kind of shifting away from that period because the U.S. is no longer, uh, it's well, for one, it's no longer the biggest commodity importer. That's China. And two, just you know, it, it's as the world's gotten kind of bigger and and more interconnected. Uh, you know, they have more opportunities to try to, uh, you know, kind of a, have a more multipolar system. And if you look back over the past five years, uh, central banks have not really been buying treasuries too rapidly. Uh, they, in recent years, they've actually been increasing their exposure to gold a little bit. So mm-hmm. uh, in that sense, you know, kind of those currencies become 
medium of exchanges, but they're not necessarily the store of value. So central banks kind of might do, they might price things in dollars, but then instead of uh, continuing to build treasuries on their, on their balance sheet, at, the, at least at the rate they have been, uh, you know, they can, they can look at other sort of neutral settlement assets like gold. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly, uh, you know, China is supposedly the world's largest gold producer, and they don't export gold. Russia's a large producer. Both of those countries have been building up gold, too. I would imagine they're doing what a lot of private citizens are doing, the Ray Dalios of this world and, and yourself and a lot of us that have been buying gold or gold-related assets, realizing that, uh, you know, not that gold is going up in value, but that the currencies are, are losing their purchasing power. So uh, so I guess it just it's, it's hard to predict how this will play out, but as you say, that you can just watch and see that the dollar is losing its influence, its its uh, its prominence, I guess, as a uh, as a currency, uh, as a uh, primary currency, I guess. Um, well, so Lynn, I guess what can we take from this uh, in terms of our own investing? Uh, I was suggesting just now. I guess I made a suggestion that gold and silver and tangibles. Uh, but what about the stock market? I mean, you you're not just a gold bug like I. I'm I'm more of a gold bug. Uh, sort of a philosophical Austrian school uh, belief system, but you are very practical. Uh, you're, you know, you're a scientist. Uh, you're an engineer. How do you? What are you doing with your investing in general terms now? And I know that you do provide specific information to your subscribers, to your paid subscribers as well as provide a lot of free stuff on the internet. But if you could, with the last uh, three or four minutes that we have here, just tell us sort of what you're doing in your investment world. Sure, yeah. So, I mean, the best investments kind of shift over time based on valuations and different areas of growth. Uh, so, for example, you know, I turned bullish on, on gold and silver and their miners back in 2018. Uh, so, we've had that as a pretty significant chunk of the portfolio since then, and that's been uh, one of the best performing areas. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, of course, we've also had very good performance from some of these growth stocks. So, for example, mm-hmm. we've had, you know, companies like Adobe or NVIDIA in their portfolio uh, that have recently actually had to trim because they've gotten so uh, expensive and so highly valued. So, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a curse, right? If if an investment does well enough, sometimes you have to you have to trim it from the portfolio. So, sure. uh, you know, I don't go I don't go all into to gold and gold stocks and and silver. I, I incorporate that as a part of the portfolio. So what I do is I yeah, I look at a blend of um, individual stocks and sometimes ETFs as well. So you know I rotate out of stocks that I think have become overvalued. I get into other stocks that I think are you know offer kind of better risk adjusted returns, uh, taking into account their growth rate, their valuation, any dividends they might pay, their balance sheet strength, things like that. So I'm still finding opportunities uh, in in U.S. markets, uh, but they're they're kind of um, they're not very abundant just because markets in general are pretty highly valued, especially compared to the economic damage that's currently happening. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and looking abroad, you know, I think that there are, there are some opportunities internationally as well. Uh, those markets tend to be a little bit cheaper. Uh, and they, they've, of course, had like a, like a decade-long period of underperformance relative to U.S. Um, uh-huh. uh, uh, stocks. So many of them are at somewhat more reasonable valuations, uh, and there are kind of trouble spots to avoid. But overall, I think you know, that there are, there are pretty good international equity opportunities. And then also, I've been increasingly looking at some of the base commodity space. Uh, so we've been interested in the copper producers, uh, some of the, the beaten-down oil producers that are actually kind of really strongly positioned, you know, ones with less debt, that have tons of reserves, that have low-cost production. Uh, you know, because they can outlast some of the weaker shale companies and things like that. So mm-hmm. uh, by, by basically having a pretty diverse portfolio uh, and then kind of shifting uh, towards areas of value. And then it, it is somewhat controversial, but, uh, you know, in April we added a, a Bitcoin, a small Bitcoin position as well to mm-hmm. some of the portfolios at around, 
I think it was it was just under seven thousand of Bitcoin, uh, and so that's been that's been a pretty good uh, 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 bullish move from there as well. So very you know, good. By, yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, and and tell with thirty seconds left here, tell our listeners uh, your service because you 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 outline all of those uh, ideas, of course, in your paid service, right? Yeah, so that's available at lindalden.com. I have tons of free material, but I also have that that paid uh, premium service for any investors that want to get uh, some more specific, uh, you know, information ideas. Yeah, they're very good. Lynn, thank you so much for being with us. Very interesting, very interesting uh, ideas that you pass along and. Uh, an understanding of the markets. It's greatly appreciated your time. Uh, all the best to you, and thanks again for, for being with us once again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. You bet. All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week. Next week, uh, James Perloff will be with me. He's written a book titled COVID-19 and the Agenda to Come. Also, uh, Ian Claussen, uh, the president of Grand Portage, will be with me. Uh, he's got a very exciting company, a, a good, very high-grade gold deposit in Alaska, He'll be here to talk to us about that. So until then, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 